Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Kerwin, and on today's episode, I have Dr. Jeremy Howick. Dr. Howick has a PhD in the philosophy of medicine and is an award-winning Oxford philosopher and medical researcher. He has conducted groundbreaking studies about placebos and why we need unbiased experiments. He has over 80 published papers in top journals like The Lancet, British Medical Journal, and Annals of Internal Medicine. He is also the author of the textbook, The Philosophy of Evidence-Based Medicine, and his new book called Dr. You, Introducing the Hard Science of Self-Healing. Jeremy, thank you so much for coming on to the episode today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so um, I got to listen to you recently at a se- seminar, and after listening to that talk and also reading your book, Dr. Yu, uh, I knew I had to get you on because the kind of information you've got, I think, is really going to benefit people today. And our topic today is is really what you study and research and publish about is how to heal yourself. So I think my first question for you then is, what got you so interested in how to heal yourself in your own personal case? Yes, a few things happened to me in my kind of my own life that led me to on a journey, an evidence journey that took um, almost 15 years now to complete, where I, I kind of had experiences where things happened to me. The first one was um, a herbal doctor offered ginger tea for some allergies I had, and that got my mind churning. You know, was it the ginger tea? Was it a placebo? That got me doing some research on the placebo effect. I've done studies with thousands of patients showing that placebos are almost as good, in some cases as good, as drugs for many common things, including mild to moderate depression, pain, anxiety. Something else happened. Um, I used to get very anxious before rowing races. I used to be a competitive rower, and yoga helped me reduce my anxiety. And I noticed that the, the side effect of reducing the anxiety was that I became happier. I wasn't depressed or anything. But it made me happier. It turns out that this relaxation response can deactivate some systems in your body, that the sympathetic nervous response, which is great for fighting, but not good for self-healing. Um, and most recently, I had a, some, a knee pain, knee injury. They did a scan. They found that there were some lesions on the cartilage in the bone. They recommended a surgery, surgical procedure. I thought, well, I'm just writing this book on self-healing. I can't do the surgery right away, so I did physiotherapy instead. And my knee got better to the point where I ran my first marathon a few months ago. So those are the kinds of things that got me going, and my mind got wondering. I'm a kind of an inquisitive, inquisitive person by nature. So I've done, you know, as you mentioned, over 80 studies, 80 published 80 publications. Um, I've taught it. I've seen it happen. And I'm convinced that there are things we can do to heal our own bodies without drugs or other medical interventions. So do you think then that modern society has is maybe in a place where it's kind of forgotten that peop, that you can heal yourself, that we, we maybe try outsource that too much to either practitioners or devices or uh, pharmaceuticals or supplements or something we've we've kind of forgotten that yeah actually there's this amazing system within the body that can actually <laughs> heal heal itself yes yeah, so it's, it's kind of a paradox because on the one, one hand modern medicine is fantastic it's wonderful it's undoubtedly as close to a miracle as you might get you know antibiotics for some serious bacterial infections rabies vaccines 
insulin for some kinds of diabetes. But because it's so amazing, we've come to overuse it and over-rely on it. Whereas before modern medicine, the good doctors knew that all they really had was what they called their bedside manner. They kind of comfort the person and just sit beside them, make them feel at ease while their body healed itself and kind of help, help that procedure by reducing anxiety and so on. So now, because modern medicine is so great, it's, um, we're overusing it. It's the same thing as, you know, you've got your smartphones and so on. They're wonderful for keeping in contact with people, but we overuse them. We use them as alarm clocks. They wake us up in the morning and we get these messages and emails thrown at us. We never escape from our emails. It's like many things which are good if used sensibly, but we're not wise enough to use them sensibly. So I think a common theme I was reading in your book there was about the immune system and inflammation. Could you maybe just explain to people then how could they help heal their own immune system and reduce inflammation? So um, I talk more about the immune system than inflammation per se, although they are related. Basically, under an acute stress, if you're being kind of scared by a, a wild animal, you know, our cave ancestors, if they were frightened by a saber-toothed tiger, or a wolf, there's a question there. If you're in that situation, do you want any resources, any energy going towards digesting food or even even fighting an illness? Or do you want all your energy diverted towards being able to run as fast as you can or if need to fight? Now the answer is obviously you want all your resources devoted to to the ability your fighting muscles and your your eyes should be able to see better and so on. You don't want you don't want to waste your time kind of healing, you know, getting rid of some virus or bacteria in that moment. You don't want your immune system to be active in that time in a, in a way it shouldn't be. Like many things with the human body, it's more complex than the simple story I just gave, but basically that's right. I mean, under an acute stress situation, your immune system basically is suppressed, and that's a good thing. The problem is that now there are no saber-toothed tigers, and very few of, the, of us encounter wolves, but... When something happens, our boss gets upset with us, we have a fight with our partner, we're worried about something, that same system gets activated that helps us fight, but we don't need to physically fight, and suppresses the immune system. The antidote to all that is relaxation response. By relaxing, you kind of boost the immune system relative to when it's stressed out. Okay. Yeah, because I have a keen interest in, um, I believe it's a branch of medicine called psychoneuroimmunology or psychoneuroendocrinology. Mm. And, you know, that's, I always found that funny that it was a, it was a field that's basically saying, you know, the way that you're feeling and the way that you're thinking does actually cause physical ailments in you. And we can try prove that through various methods. And I mean, that's just feeding back into what you're saying there, where a problem it seems like in the world is that we've got all these saber tooths, but they're not saber tooths. You know, they're virtual saber tooths, yeah. and they, yeah. in whatever way, that people are feeling overwhelmed, and be, that's a actually it sounds like a big contributing factor as to what's maybe exacerbating a, an illness or a condition, um, and it might be a reason that when you're trying to solve a problem, you, you might stall or plateau because you're not dealing with this other element. And uh, so that, that, yeah, that's why I love the, the kind of tips that you give in your book there. So I think an, another, another nice one might be the uh, Dr. Bali story. So your, your yeah. yoga teacher that's uh, transformed your life. Could you just explain that situation? Yeah, he's 94 years old now. And I just saw a YouTube video. He's had traveled to 
some other country in Toronto to give a, a festival. He's a, an amazing guy. I met him in 1993. At that time, I had just failed to make the Canadian rowing team in my first trial. I was obviously devastated. And I thought that one thing I could do, I, I'd reached my physical limits. I mean, I trained like a maniac and so on, but I thought, well, if I can just focus a bit more during the key races, if I can control my mind a bit better, I'll be able to perform better. And so I'd heard these stories about crazy yogis in India doing wild things like standing on one leg for years on end. And I didn't, I kind of only, ha I didn't really believe them, but I wanted to believe them. So I sought out a traditional yoga teacher. I wasn't looking for the kind of yoga which is physical postures, which is wonderful, by the way, but I did, at the time I didn't need any additional physical fitness. I was, I was very fit. I wanted someone to, to teach me these traditional things. And I found him via my, my mother. She kind of knew those kind of people. And I went to his studio. It was just a, his living room in a modest flat. His wife was cooking Indian food in, in the next room. And I fired a bunch of questions at him. You know, how does this work? Where'd you get your PhD? You know, what do you mean the mind affects the body? What are you talking about? You know, this inner healing, inner pharmacy. I was very skeptical, but he was very patient, answered all my questions. And after a while, I ran out of, out of questions. At which time he said, well, you know what? Why don't you try the class? The first class is free and you see for yourself. So I tried the class, and first of all, I was impressed at how strong he was. But more than that, I was amazed at how blissed out I felt at the end, how relaxed I felt, how focused, how clear everything seemed. And I thought to myself, well, if I can learn to do that in the rowing, I'll be able to perform better, win more races, which I eventually did. I made the Canadian team the next year. He had also helped um, the Montreal Canadiens, the ice hockey team, win a Stanley Cup one year. So I wasn't the first athlete he'd helped out. Okay. So I'm just interested there. What's the difference then between the yoga that I think most of us think about, as you said, with the, the postures versus mm -hmm. the kind of um, yoga that you got to experience? What What is the difference there? Yeah. So the first thing to, clear, to repeat again, I'm not criticizing the different styles. They're all wonderful. Um, the fact is that um, that that most yoga we do and it is involves great physical postures. And those wonderful physical postures will do what they're designed to do. They'll make you physically fitter. Um, and because the mind and body are connected, I hope we touch on that a bit more. I mean, anytime you do a physical exercise, you are working on your mind as well. However, the yoga system as a holistic system has eight levels and, um, they, they involve physical postures as well as certain behaviors, moral behaviors, as well as relaxation, um, breathing techniques. And at the higher levels, different stages of meditation. And those are where you, where you really get the deeper benefits of yoga is through the, the meditation. In fact, the first, one of the first people who brought yoga to North America, um, 150 years ago only taught one posture, just sitting up straight. Um, he didn't teach any, any of those fancy physical, you know, salut, sun salutations and warrior poses that we see now. Okay, yeah, because I'm just thinking if people want sort of the big, biggest bang for their buck initially, it sounds like you want it's the meditation side of things that might give you access to some of that, and then the but the postures are just not uh, an added benefit, a part of the ritual, I guess, you know, to get you in the flow state. Um, yeah, that's one way of looking at it. Another way is if you do the postures in a traditional yoga setting, like mine, the you could think of it as meditation in motion. Because if you tell most people, you know what, sit down for 20 minutes and just watch your breath come in and out, they just can't do it. But if you say, 
kind of you relax them a little bit, then give them some simple physical postures to do mindfully while they're breathing, they kind of enter that state without trying. Mm-hmm. So it's, in a way, it's a kind of it's a it's a trick to get into it. So okay. it's it, it's all together in a way, basically. Yeah. So would you then maybe explain a little bit about the difference between expectations and conditioning? Because I think that's that does that lead into the mind body connection a bit better for people to understand? Yeah. So the mind body basically we we often speak of things. We say, well, that's just physical or that's just psychological, and I can't think of a single thing which is just psychological. And almost nothing is just physical. And expectation is when you have, let's say, a, a conscious belief. So let's say Gary, we trust him. He says, you know what? He tells me at the end, you say, you tell me, that's, that was a great interview. If I believe you, um, I'm going to feel better. So I have an expectation that, hey, you know, it's going to be a great interview when I finally hear it. And that positive expectation will change my brain in such a way that my body produces its, its own chemicals, its own feel-good chemicals like endorphins and dopamine um so those are that's about positive expectations and i can give those to myself if i have let's say a back pain the fact is most back pain goes away or is reduced within three weeks so instead of panicking if i tell myself it's going to get better in three weeks or someone else tells me it's going to get better within three weeks that can create a positive expectation and cause my brain to produce its own pain-killing chemicals like endorphins that's that all that's all con- at the conscious level my conscious explicit belief conditioning is what happens at a subconscious level the famous uh, studies were with pavlov we've all heard the term pavlov's dogs pavlov rang a bell and fed the dogs and then repeated that several times after a while he would just ring the bell and they began salivating so the same thing can happen to us i mean if i have a great conversation with you and that we enjoy it together then even the anticipating, subconsciously anticipating my next conversation with you will make me feel good because it's been a positive experience uh, several times in a row. This can happen to our health as well in the other way. I mean, if certain situations at work or at home are repeatedly negative and induce a stress response, then just the thought of that situation can induce a stress response. Mm-hmm. And the difference between conditioning and expectancy that I, I like to focus on is one is conscious the other is subconscious so one is more in our control than the other one so this is a point where i always like to take um ideas and make them actionable so that anyone can try and even do them today so what would be your tip then for someone who's trying to heal themselves from an expectation point of view what 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 kind of language do they need to use there yes well a positive message that's the simplest one just tell yourself, you know, I'm feeling much better, or I'm going to feel much, be- very, much better very soon. Um, there, are, if you want to get a bit more complicated and take a few minutes instead of just a few seconds, there are some wonderful positive psychology exercises you can do. For example, write a write a letter to yourself, a self compassion letter. Write a letter to yourself about everything that's going to go well in the next short time, and then reflect on that. Okay, and then when it comes to the con- conditioning side. Um- I'm thinking here, is that kind of like the benefit when you go to social groups or you go to a gym, that you're in a positive environment? It, it, is that the kind of line we need to do to activate that those pathways? Absolutely. There are two things you can do. One is, I mean, you know what kind of environments make you feel good uh, and what which ones don't. Just go somewhere that makes you feel good. Go talk to someone that makes you feel good. You've been conditioned to um, feel good around the situation. Something else you can do is, 
whenever you succeed at something, no matter how small, give yourself a little reward, condition yourself. So, you know, today I published a paper, um, came out in the Canadian Medical Association Journal. I'm going to reward myself. I'm going with my wife and our child on a date, date night. You know? Hopefully he won't cry too much. So kind of rewarding yourself. That way, you know, when you succeed, it kind of leads you towards uh, that positive emotion. So I'm conditioning myself to feel good when, when, when good little things happen. Yeah, I read that in your book, how when you accomplish different tasks, you, you give yourself set rewards. And so that creates yeah. that positive feedback, feedback cycle that you know, okay, yeah. I'm going to yeah. get that, um, that good feeling come out of this, yeah. even out of a tough situation. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And um, moving on from that, then, uh, you, in your book too, you talk about um, empathy. So I think this is kind of leading with the conditioning side of things. And this is more to do with the language that your doctor talks to you. And I think mm. that is so powerful. So when a lot of people listening will have consulted different healthcare practitioners um, looking for results from various ailments, what, what, what are your findings when it comes to empathy? Yes. So previously, people thought of doctors who were friendly and offered you know, honest hope, that that was just a fuzzy thing. What I've done with my research is I've taken that thing which was previously fuzzy and quantified its, its benefits in the same way we quantify the effects of drugs. I found that doctors who offer empathic and positive communication can improve conditions ranging, ranging from you know length of hospital stay and lung function to pain, patient satisfaction, and even quality of life by a modest but important amount. And if you, so if there are doctors out there who are doing this, wonderful. What you're doing is fantastic and it's evidence-based. It's not kind of against evidence. It is evidence-based. If you're a patient, you know, seek out a doctor who's empathic and positive. This doesn't mean you should look for a friendly idiot. <laughs> and fortunately, there are many doctors who are both empathic and aware of the evidence. And in fact, you can't really be an evidence-based doctor without empathy because um, to be a to make the right diagnosis, you've got to understand the patient. And the, the understanding involves, requires empathy. So it's important to think of empathy as evidence-based, as opposed to opposed to evidence-based evidence medicine. So for doctors, they should carry on doing it or emphasize it, and patients should seek out doctors which do offer that kind of care. Yeah. I, and I mean, you give so many good examples in your book there of, uh, of evidence that shows how much empathy can improve uh, the, a patient's outcome. And it, it just was fascinating, just the language that uh, yeah, the practitioner uses when they deliver the diagnosis or they deliver the prognosis and the treatment plan is incredible. I've seen it with my own two eyes. I've been, um, as part of a study, so we'd all have the right ethical approval, I've watched doctors who are trained in empathy. I train them in empathy, go on to treat patients. They come in in tears due to some kind of pain. It's often back pain, shoulder pain, or knee pain. But these problems lead to psychosocial problems, like they can't pick up their child, they can't play with their grandchild, they can't mow the lawn, they can't help their wife, they can't help their husband. So this worry exacerbates the pain because it's a stress it's a stressor so the doctor that takes the time to understand these things to offer some simple tip tips and tools the patients leave smiling and their pain goes away not just their anxiety goes down their pain goes down as well so it's, it it can really be incredible i mean it doesn't cure all kinds of pain but it really offers a great benefit in many cases and nowadays with this opioid crisis 
you know, prescription painkillers kill more people than heroin and cocaine combined in the U.S. every year. The problem is not just the U.S., it's in Africa, it's in the U.K. So having something else we can offer, which is, you know, just takes a bit more time and that it only has positive side effects. We should really emphasize these things instead of ignoring them. And is that maybe a part of the problem now, again, talking about where society is going wrong, is just that doctors, I believe you talked about it in your talk that I was at, um, it's just like the burnout syndrome, that there have been time constraints, that they've been squeezed, especially in the NHS in the UK. And that is that what's sort of causing a deterioration in empathy that would naturally have been in that person, but they just, they, they, got, they got no time for it? Human beings, unless they're psychopaths, or, or unless they're severely autistic, we all have empathy. Doctors go into the profession, the vast majority of them, because they want to help people. Um, but it's driven out of them with a, a kind of budget constraints and top-down management where my doctor colleagues claim they're spending between a third and two-thirds, so between 30 and 60% of their time doing paperwork filling out forms. They've got to stare at a screen while they're talking to a patient. Now, this stuff is doesn't help, and they're leaving the profession in droves. First of all, there's a high suicide, even they call it an epidemic among young doctors. They're so stressed out because of the, the workload they're being given. And then they're leaving to work for consultancies and so on, where they can make more money without all the stress. And it's unsurprising given the conditions they're put in. And I mean, I don't know the solution to this, I'm looking into it with some colleagues in the Oxford Internet Institute to see how we can use technology to enhance the kind of uh, patient-doctor relationship. But but it's a big problem, and it, it's not helping doctors or patients. And so carry on with the empathy side because it seems so powerful the way that people d- talk to one another, um, the effect it has on each other. So we just talked about the doctor-patient relationship, but this also, I think you touched on earlier, is the relationships that we have even at home or with work colleagues. So if someone who's listening wants to help a loved one, you would say that you can actually enhance the healing of the loved one in the way that you talk to them. It is good to give them positive messages. It's even deeper than that, Gary. So social isolation is as bad for us as smoking. It removes on average five years from our lives. And the contrary is also true. I mean, good social relationships, if you feel close and are close to your friends, family, and social groups, you're going to live on average five years longer. Um, so the takeaway from that is simple. If you feel isolated, um, join some group. It's quite, internet can be, social media can be bad for people in many ways, but it's also good. There's whatever Whatever your interest or hobby is, there's some group you can join. If you're religious, it's quite it's easier often if you can go to the if you're Muslim, go to a mosque, if you're Jewish, go to the synagogue, Christian, go to some church. They often have groups that are that are there ready to help you. Um, if you know so if you know someone who's isolated, reach out to them by all means. You're helping them just by reaching out and saying, Hey, you know what, what can I do? Can I do something small for you? Um, and that there you get a double benefit because you are improving their health. But there's emerging evidence that when you do something nice for somebody else, an altruistic act. You're also boosting your own mental health and well-being. So, you know, if you're feeling isolated, there's very few situations where you can't do anything about it, even with the simplest of technologies. You know, reach out to some group. Um, and if you know someone who's isolated, don't wait. Send them a text, give them a call, or better, visit them today because you're doing yourself and them a huge, a huge favor. 
Mm. And I think that feeds back into why also support groups are so important. So when, you know, on this podcast, a lot of, we talk a lot about diets and nutrition and, and other elements, but when, in a way, when you assign yourself to a different, a specific way of eating, it's like you join a support group because you, you mix it amongst other like-minded people and you get to talk to them. So I think in, from the evidence that you're sharing here is that that would sort of feed into helping to improve your health because you're finding support from other people versus maybe someone going, you're crazy eating that or why are you doing that or, or something. It's, is that, it sounds yes. like that's what happens. Yes. I mean, no doubt all of these diets will have independent benefits. However, um, a, a great, like you said, I mean, a lot of the benefit might come from this social support they're getting. So yes. And the other thing, I mean, social support, if you think about how it works, there's a few different hypotheses. The two one, the two hypotheses I think are most evidence-based. The first one is the direct effects. Let's say you and I become friends and something happens to you and I, I know where you can get help. I can point you in a, directly in, in a direction that'll help you. That's called the direct effects model. Other one is it reduces stress. If I know I can count on you and you know you can count on me, I'll feel less stressed out about it. So these people on diets who are part of a social network their stress will be lower. And lower stress helps them digest. We all talk about what we put in our mouths. What about what goes out? If you're under stress, you're not digesting your food, literally not digest digesting your food. Um, they've proven this in, in numerous studies. And we know this from our own, own experience. If you're hungry and all of a sudden someone screams at you, you forget that you're hungry. It's not just that you forget mentally you're hungry. Your body stops producing the gastric juices that lead to your hunger. So that's probably a big part of it yeah yeah and then that's you just got me thinking too when people are working and they're trying to grab lunch but they're in a stress state and they're just you know they're thinking about work 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 in a way they're not actually getting the, the best nutritional benefit out of their lunch because they're probably activating that sympathetic fight and flight response whilst they're trying to yeah. consume some nutrition so yes this, this was discovered uh, pavlov the same guy with pavlov's dogs was doing tests with dogs measuring their gastric juices and then suddenly he made a surprise discovery. When the dog next to one, if he was experimenting on, on one dog, if a different dog was barking very loudly beside him, the dog would stop producing gastric juices. And Walter Cannon found that with humans, it's, it's the same thing. So you might have the greenest, you know, most organic smoothie for lunchtime, but if you're under stress, you're not digesting those nutrients. So I'm not saying you should grab a McDonald's instead, but, um, think about you know what's going in has to be digested to be absorbed and to digest and absorb you've got to be more relaxed and so is that sort of a tip that you might suggest to someone from the mindfulness point of view or the meditation point of view that yeah. before you sort of consume that's this is how you link in mindfulness that you sort of take time to reflect and go all right let me just try reset quickly before i i eat like i don't want to be lost in thought here and just mindless whilst i'm trying to consume my food Yes, that's why in many uh, traditions, if it's a religious tradition, they'll do a little prayer first. What that does is, whether you're religious or not, if you can think of some kind of ritual to do before, it just slows you down um, and takes your mind away from your problems, away from the internet, to focus on gratitude for the food you're going to receive. Um, and you don't need to be religious, uh, you know, and even in Buddhism, which is where mindfulness comes from, there's no God there, so it's not the same thing as religion. Just some kind of ritual you can think of for yourself, where you slow down, take one or two or three deep breaths, conscious breaths, 
that's enough. And that's what I love about this, you know, talk about Silicon Valley style, you know, this is scalable, you could do this anywhere in the world as many times as you want. It's so easy to implement, but the the benefits you can get from just doing this can enhance things. It's all about what we're talking about, how to heal yourself. And I love that. Um, Could you also just explain then, I found it fascinating in your book, there was one point that caught my attention was the yoga and the glucose control. Just thinking, how, how does yoga... Yeah, there's actually research that shows yoga improved um, the glucose response in type 2 diabetics, I believe. Well, you see, the stress response, that's be the stress response. But yoga seemed to have, seems to have induced the stress response, and that affects the symptoms and causes of diabetes. So first of all, someone's less stressed. We all talk about stress eating. Um, and then all, uh, stress eating, so when I'm very anxious, I tend to crave sweet things. And many people have the similar, similar experiences. Others don't eat enough. So our appetite is related to how stressed we are, and yoga reduces stress. The other thing is that, yes, I mean, the stress response, uh, the sympathetic nervous system is connected to how much insulin we produce. So, you know, in the different body organs and so on. So by relaxing ourselves, we do influence that, yes, yes. Okay. Yeah, no, I just found it because, you know, I mean, especially with the world and type 2 diabetes escalating, it, it just thought, oh, here's another health way of improving the situation with a diabetic. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, um, also, you, ha- you talk about in your book um, genetics, and, you know, a lot of people might think, oh, I just, I'm, I'm destined for this situation because of my genetics. Do you have a view on that? Genetics are important, but it's related to an age-old debate of nature versus nurture. How much of my health problems am I born with? How much did I develop because of my habits? And the Genome Project seemed to weigh in heavily on the nature side. Well, anything wrong with you, it's your gene. And therefore, to fix the problem, we've got to tinker with this, this little gene and we'll fix the problem. Well, they, they were disappointed because they found that there are very few diseases that are related to a specific gene, almost none. So um, Angelina Jolie famously found that she had um, the, a gene related to the expression of breast cancer, the BRCA1 gene, and her doctors claimed she had a high chance, I think it was a 70% chance or so of getting breast cancer. Um, in fact, that's not quite right. Her doctors might have given her you know, misleading information, perhaps in an unintentionally, but it's more like 50%. So even a gene which has been identified as being correlated with a specific kind of cancer, it's still 50%, you know, environmental. Yet in spite of that, if you look at Cancer Research UK, uh, they acknowledge that about 2 or 3% of their funding is spent on environmental research, whereas they also acknowledge that 43% of the cause of cancers are environmental causes. What we eat, um, different things in our pollution, what we eat and so on, lack of exercise. So it's important to remember that yes, genes are important, but don't believe that they determine absolutely any disease at all, really. And there are very few exceptions. The, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Certainly yeah. not cancer and heart disease and so on. 
Okay, yeah. And, you know, what you're saying there also backs up. I've had um, one previous guest, Alison Gane, she had a severe um, brain tumor. Her story yes. was amazing. And yeah, she's still alive to this day. You know, I think she was only meant to have three months to live and how many years later now she's still here, but she implemented lifestyle changes as a part of her healing process. So, you know, it was an, yes. it was an incredible story to say, yeah, you've beaten all the odds. Yes. Yeah. Yes, well, th there's a whole... Um study is called um, uh, anecdotes or, or cases of radical remission I forget who pub published the book but they document cases where the you know their di their diagnosis is so bad that they give them a three or six months to live or a year to live and they recover completely there there are there are dramatic cases like that yes and and most of them report doing certain things to change the way they live to help that radical remission so I'd like to also just touch on for any of the healthcare practitioners listening or the doctors. Yes. Should they prescribe placebos? I don't think it's unethical to prescribe placebos for the following reason. Even if you give someone a placebo and tell them it's a placebo, you say this is a sugar pill, which is a placebo, it still seems to work because of conditioning. You see, when you go to visit the doctor you trust, then you engage in the ritual of taking the pill. That seems to affect our, our biochemistry in a way that can cure certain, help to cure or reduce the symptoms of many common things like pain, depression, anxiety, and so on. Um, so I don't think it's unethical because you're not, you don't have to lie. However, I don't think doctors have, you know, boxes of placebo pills lying around and they might still be worried because they might think, well, even though I'm not lying to the patient, the patient might misunderstand, which is also possible. But the good news is that you don't need a placebo pill to induce a placebo effect. It suffices to give a positive message. So I think that doctors all should, yes, know that them giving, offering the patient hope and being empathic, this induces what we call, what many call placebo effects. That's not just a fluffy thing you do as an add-on. That's a core part of evidence-based medicine. Um, and the effects of these things have been quantified. And the only thing to add is that some doctors wonder, well, well, I don't, don't want to lie to my patient. I don't, don't, don't want to give them a positive message when there's nothing positive to, to say. And that's right. You don't want to lie to the patient. And it can be tricky in some cases if the prognosis is very bad to offer hope, to give a positive message. Um, however, in many cases, it's, it's, it's easy. So if the patient has some mild to moderate pain, this fluctuates, back pain, most of it goes away. So telling them, well, most patients in your situation get much better soon. That's not a lie. And in the tricky cases where the prognosis is bad, let's say it's, you know, stage four cancer. Well, in that, those cases, those tricky cases, you can still find something to be hopeful about, you know, well, you know, we're going to find the best solution for you. Um, we're going to, you know, we're going to manage your pain. So, there's always, even in the more tricky cases, there's something to be positive about. Mm. It sounds like as long as you're, you're being supportive in your tone and the words that you yeah. use, it's, yeah. it's, it's going to help the patient. Because yeah. it also feeds into when in the stories there in your book, you were talking about even placebo surgical procedures and how effective they can be. And yeah. it just gets me thinking, so which patients would benefit from placebo how, like how would you would you give any tips as to which people you think would benefit from getting a placebo well the first thing is most people think i'm very smart you know it wouldn't work on me it involves deception and you know i can't it can't work on me and 
they've tried to find, you know, predict who will respond to placebo and who, who won't, and they've gotten, they haven't gone very far. I mean, they found some correlations with certain traits, but they have not been able to find some kind of causal factors. Um, I'm sure I've responded to a placebo. I, I don't think I've knowingly taken any placebo medication, but um, in my rowing career, I mean, my first coach told me, you're going to be a champion. He had no reason to say that. I was too short to be a good rower, but I believed it. And that belief led me to engage in behaviors, in other words, hard training, which led to me winning a few races. Um, so there's no, we shouldn't think we're too smart to respond to a placebo. We, we're all susceptible to it, potentially. And with surgery, yes, I mean, most people, if they offer you uh, surgery for knee pain, back pain, or shoulder pain, the evidence suggests that the placebo surgery works as well as the real thing for most of those cases. So instead of engaging in the more expensive, more invasive, more potentially dangerous surgery, you should consider other options, um, the physiotherapy and so on, that will um, cure yourself as well as the placebo surgery. I'm sure some people listening to this, um, hopefully we haven't confused them, but using the word placebo, um, if you wouldn't just recap quickly, what is a placebo for anyone who's not medically trained? Yeah, so yeah, I should say that also, just because I said that a physiotherapy might help for these things. I don't mean that physiotherapy is a placebo. And a placebo means many things. It's an umbrella term that encompasses sugar pills, um, salt water or saline injections, um, you know, uh, attention controls and psychotherapeutic interventions, and placebo surgery. So placebo uh, knee surgery, for example, the real surgery involves arthroscopic surgery involves a small incision in the knee and then lavage so cleaning basically cleaning up the cartilage and bone around there to to avoid the inflammation the placebo surgery would involve just the incision and then sewing up the incision without doing the lavage without kind of going in there and cleaning up the cartilage and bone um and then not often not telling the patient the patient thinks i might be getting the real thing or i might be getting the placebo but i don't know which i'm getting and so when someone's hearing that going hang on did you just say that a doctor can cut me stitch me up and i think they've done the surgery but and my knee will actually get better like how does that work because they would think i've seen the x-rays it looks horrible i can it sort of go up and down the stairs how how come it feels better now well like i said it, it happened something similar happened to me the, the scan they had for me showed such bad damage and new, numerous injuries they recommended surgery yet physiotherapy and some yoga, simple yoga techniques i used got me to the point where i, I ran a full marathon and i'm, I'm i weighed nine, 90 kilos I'm not, it was kind of quite onerous on my knee um so how does that work i think there are different mechanisms first of all the reason we think it can't work the reason our mind is blocked is that we think of the mind and body as separate so we think of the knee, we think, well, it's a mechanical problem, like a car problem. It needs a mechanical solution. Well, once you realize that the mind and body are connected, it becomes easier to see how, or at least to fathom how, you know, placebos can work. And the way it works specifically for knee, back, and shoulder surgery is I think the incision induces the wound healing cascade. Your body doesn't know whether it's a friendly surgeon doing the incision or an, a, a, some kind of bite from a, a, a hostile animal. So your body sends new tissue there 
it has a you know you get en an endorphin release a painkilling release etc this can so your body can heal itself mechanically and um, just like when you have a scratch your body sews itself back up the same way a surgeon would that's a mechanical reconstruction so similar things can happen to the knee back and shoulder um, the other thing is that your beliefs if you believe things are getting better you might instead of holding your shoulder all the time for example and not moving it you might begin to move it in gentle ways and the movement can help it and then of course are the things we talked about like positive expectations i think hey this famous surgeon just operated on me i'm going to get better this activates your brain you produce endorphins and then these endorphins uh, reduce the pain yeah so it's, yes. it's all about our internal pharmacy and being able to know how yeah. to harness it you know that and it so i think that you've given a lot of tips already today about how you could try activate the internal pharmacy within your own body to allow your tissues the best chance to heal themselves yeah yeah so um are there any other little tips that you want to share just before we wrap things up um that maybe i haven't asked you about how someone could try heal themselves yeah it all begins i think with inducing the relaxation response ideally you want to do this for you know 20 or 30 minutes twice a day but if you don't have time there's some simple things you can do one is let out a sigh so you can take a deep breath in and just say ah right away your body will will the body stress will be lower you can just for just one single minute just close your eyes and count how many breaths come in and how many breaths go out um and yeah so those are two simple ways you can induce the relaxation response in the context of a very busy day a busy schedule mm -hmm. and of course in your book you know you've got lots of actionable but that's what i love about your book too you've got lots of actionable bits so you go through all the evidence and the theory and stories of different things but at the end there's always right this is actually what you can do now yourself yeah. which I, I like too yeah i was hoping though that the book not just do the actions because yeah, there's so many different actions, so many different things we can do to induce cell, induce our body's inner healing properties. What I would really like people to get from the book is change the way they think. Stop viewing the mind and body as separate and stop viewing themselves as helpless in the face of health problems. So mind and body are connected and you can heal yourself from many of the things that we currently seek too much medicine for. Mm -hmm. and hopefully yeah we've given lots of examples of that in our talk today yeah uh, jeremy are there any resources or links you'd like to share now if anyone wants to keep up with your work or follow you further on the internet yes well i have a website which is quite easy it's just my name www.jeremyhowick.com and there's a bunch of resources there that i update on a weekly basis and I sent out a newsletter with uh, some some new evidence about every every month or two. The newsletter is also on the website, and they can sign up there. Brilliant, thank you. And I'll put all of that in the show notes um, for anyone listening. But I just want to say thank you again so much for your time and all your expertise and all the actionable tips and cool things that you got to share today. Thank you so much. This has been really fun. Yeah.